If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to uh, conclude our study in this short prophetic book. We have seen that this book is a biographical account of a man who is deeply religious but is far from God. A man who is deeply religious but possesses some very destructive attitudes and behaviors which ultimately lead him to being out of touch with the mission of God. And we're going to conclude this study today. Let me pick it up in chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. and He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? While it may not jump off the page uh, at you, the main theme of this chapter is idolatry. We're going to ask and answer three questions about idolatry today. What is idolatry? How is idolatry diagnosed? And how is idolatry cured? What is idolatry? How is idolatry diagnosed? And how is idolatry cured? First, what is idolatry? When we hear the term idolatry, maybe we think of metal statues or wooden statues that people bow down to or sing to. Idolatry is much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Jonah is spot on. He is spot on with this. He's not saying anything that's not true. He is, he is reciting exactly how God revealed himself to the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Jonah's theology is good. He studied the scriptures. So why is he so upset? Why is he so angry? 
Why is Jonah so upset about God being gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love with the Ninevites? He's not upset about God being all of that with him or the people of Israel. He's fine with that. He's not fine with God being God with the Ninevites. Why? The answer is idolatry. Jonah's sense of value and worth isn't predicated upon being loved by God. It's predicated upon his position in relation to the Ninevites. Okay? Let me say that again. Jonah's value and worth is not predicated upon God loving him and being gracious with him, being compassionate with him. That's not where his value and worth is rooted. His value and worth is rooted in where he stands in comparison to other people, in this case, the Ninevites. God showing grace, compassion, and love to Israel made Jonah special in comparison to other people in the world. Once God showed grace, compassion, and love to the Ninevites, Jonah no longer saw himself as special in comparison to the Ninevites. They were now on equal footing. This is why John Adams' quote is so astute and profound. Second President of the United States, Adams said, every person is strongly actuated by a passion for distinction. Every person is strongly actuated by a passion for distinction. Jonah's value and worth came from his position in the world in comparison to other people like the Ninevites. God's grace, compassion, and love for Israel gave Jonah distinction. Once God showed grace, love, compassion to the Ninevites, God removed Jonah's source of distinction. This is idolatry. And I want to take a minute to try to show how idolatry is the root of all sins. Picture a tree. The roots are idolatry. The various kinds of toxic fruits that grow from it are sins. Okay? Idolatry feeds every sin. Idolatry is the root of all sins. And to try to illustrate this, let's think about for a minute the sin of racism. How is it idolatry feeds racism? Now, there's a lot that fits into the category of racism. Uh, we can't be exhaustive with it in the time that we have, but I think we would all agree that wishing harm on someone of another race fits into the category of racism. To a degree, this is part of Jonah's problem. He would have gladly gone to Nineveh if he knew God would judge them severely. The reason he left is he knew God was going to be compassionate and gracious with them. So wishing harm on someone of another race is certainly part of the, the category of racism. The flip side of wishing harm on someone is wishing the absence of blessing on someone. Harm is really the absence of blessing. To be physically devastated by injury or sickness is really the absence of being blessed physically. Now here's the question. Why wouldn't I want someone of another race to be the recipient of equal blessing to me? Why wouldn't I want 
someone of another race to be the recipient of equal blessing to me. Maybe the reflexive response to the question is they don't deserve equal blessing to me. But that doesn't go deep enough. To say someone isn't deserving of equal blessing doesn't go far enough. Why? Why? What happens if they are recipients of equal blessing? The answer is I lose distinction. The voice of idolatry says if everyone is the recipient of equal blessing, then I'm no longer special. I lose distinction. The voice of idolatry says my value is derived from being set apart from others. My value is derived by being glorious in comparison to other people. Equal blessing removes distinction. Equal blessing removes glory. Now throughout Jonah 4, God is in effect saying, Jonah, Look, your race, your nationality, your religion isn't what makes you special. The fact that I made you in my image and likeness is what makes you special. And if you're special because I made you in my image and likeness, then the Ninevites are equally special because I made them too. When I derive my specialness by comparing myself to the position of other people, I have fallen into idolatry. Now think about this. Jonah is a church-attending, Bible-reading, prayer warrior, idolater. Idolatry is not just a problem for irreligious people. Idolatry is a problem for religious people. When we derive our specialness through horizontal means, we have fallen into idolatry. When we derive our specialness through being horizontally distinct from those around us, we have fallen into idolatry. Now, Jonah's idolatry is a kind of corporate idolatry, a nationalistic idolatry. He and his people, his distinction is nationalistic, it's corporate. But we do this individually as well. Sports. One way I pursue distinction in comparison to other people is through athletic achievements. If I show myself to be better than anyone else, I'll have distinction, I'll have glory. My value and worth is predicated upon being set apart from others in my athletic achievement. We do this with our academics. One way I show how special I am in comparison to other people is to be better than they are in school. Getting better grades, higher ACT scores, securing academic scholarships, all that gives me distinction. It sets me apart from the rest of the the crowd. We do this with career. When I make more money or perform better than anyone else in my industry or sector, I create distinction in comparison to others. When my sense of worth and value is rooted in being more successful than anyone else, this has become an idol. Parenting. What does idolatry of parenting and kids look like? How does a passion for distinction manifest itself through parenting? My kids are holy in comparison to others. 
My kids are successful academically in comparison to others. My kids have memorized more Bible verses than the other kids. Now listen. When my value and worth is tied to parenting, when it's tied to raising up kids who are well-behaved and academically successful, I will put a weight on my kids' shoulders too heavy for them to carry. Because my passion for distinction is coming through parenting, I need my kids to perform at the highest level in every area of life in order for me to feel a sense of value and worth. When I'm getting my value and worth through the performance of my children, I will put a weight on their shoulders that will ultimately crush them. What does idolatry in church or ministry participation look like? Because I can use involvement in church as my source of distinction. Well, I teach classes in church. Most others don't. If my value and worth is rooted in teaching classes in church, I have turned teaching in the church into an idol. I'm a leader in the church. Most others aren't. If my value and worth is rooted in being a leader in the church, I have turned being a leader in the church into an idol. I play on the worship team. Most others don't. If my value and worth is rooted in that, I have turned the worship team into an idol. Sports, academics, career, parenting, church involvement. Here's the thing. They're all good things. They're all good things. The essence of idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. And it becomes an ultimate thing when I look to that thing to give me my source of distinction, my value, my worth, my glory. You would have thought, for Jonah, you would have thought that being the recipient of God's grace, compassion, Love would have been enough. It wasn't. It wasn't enough. Because that is not what he was ultimately looking to. His source of distinction was not rooted in God's love, grace, and compassion towards him. His source of distinction was in comparison to the people around him. Second question, how is idolatry diagnosed? The short answer from this text is idolatry is diagnosed emotionally. Idolatry is diagnosed emotionally. The ESV does a better job translating verse one. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. News of God's compassion on the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Then in verse 4, God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? The emotion of anger seeps through the pages of chapter 4. By showing the Ninevites compassion, God took away Jonah's source of distinction 
and he became exceedingly displeased and angry. If you want to know if a good thing has become an ultimate thing, when the good thing is threatened or taken away, what is your response? You get defensive, angry, anxious, hostile, fearful. What happens when your source of distinction is removed? If your source of distinction is your athletic achievement, what happens when you lose it? What happens when you don't perform well? What happens when it's taken away? I have a colleague in ministry. He's a, his name's Colton. He pastors a church in Memphis, Tennessee. In high school, he was a star baseball player. He was being courted by a number of Division I schools um, to play baseball, full-ride scholarship. Uh, in one of his games, he slid into a base and he tore up his knee. And it ended his baseball career. I worked with Colton for a few years. And I remember hearing the story for the first time. He said that moment was both the most devastating and best time of my life. It was devastating because I needed success in baseball to feel valuable. And God took it away. I became angry, despondent, hostile, depressed. But he said God used that to show me how important baseball and athletic performance had become to me. He said it was in that moment God had compassion on me. He had grace on me. And he showed me through Jesus that my value and worth in his eyes has been permanently fixed because of what Christ has done. And it's not contingent on securing a scholarship to a Division I school. If your source of distinction is academic achievement, what happens when you botch a test? What happens when your rival gets a better score than you do? What happens when academic achievement's taken away? If your source of distinction is career, what happens when you lose a client to a competitor? What happens when you mess up the deal and you lose credibility in your field? If the source of your distinction is parenting, what happens when your 14-year-old daughter comes home and tells you she's pregnant? What happens when the school calls you and lets you know your son was caught smoking pot? Like Jonah, would life feel hardly worth living? Let me push a little deeper into this parenting thing. A few weeks ago, we, we did a series on gospel safety and time. It's, it's my prayer. I hope it's becoming more and more your prayer as well that Alliance Bible Church be a place where people are able to admit their problems honestly without fear of rejection or accusation. We want this place to be a safe place. So I want to think just for a moment about how idolatry makes churches dangerous places. Let me just say that. You can write that down. Idolatry makes churches dangerous places. Idolatry undermines safety. Idolatry undermines safety. Let me press into this a little bit. So say the source of my distinction is parenting. Having my kids be good in school, well-behaved, is critical to me. That sets me apart from other parents. If parenting is an idol, 
that will greatly impact how I respond when another parent's 14-year-old daughter comes home and tells them she's pregnant. How will I respond to that? When it's some other parent who has quote-unquote failed, that gives me an opportunity to create further distinction for me. And I'll do this either by being openly critical of those parents or quietly critical of those parents in my own heart or behind closed doors with others. In other words, the root of idolatry produces the toxic fruit of gossip. The root of idolatry produces the toxic fruit of gossip. Idolatry makes churches dangerous places. At the root of gossip and slander is ultimately idolatry. Ministry idolatry is another thing that makes churches dangerous places. Last August, I talked about the functions and the forms of the church. The functions of the church never change. Things like worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, prayer. How we do those functions are the forms, and they will and must change. Some examples of ministry forms that we have here, and I'm not picking on anybody. These are the first things that came to my mind when I'm, I'm writing this message. The Gospel Project. That's something you're actually going to be hearing a little bit more about in the weeks to come. That's a form. That's not a function. That's how we do a function, but it's not itself the function. It's a form. Alpha. Awana. Men's fraternity. You come up with your own list. They're forms. They're not functions. Ministry idolatry occurs when we sanctify the form rather than the function. Ministry idolatry occurs when we take the form and we elevate that as the thing that must and has to be a part of the church. And if it's not, we're failing in some way. That's taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. It's ministry idolatry. And ministry idolatry, when people sanctify forms over functions, the church instantaneously becomes a dangerous place. It becomes a battleground where bodies will end up lying on the ground. How do I diagnose idolatry myself when I look at the thing in my life that I need for a distinction, for my value, for my worth? If that's threatened or taken away, what is my visceral response? What's my emotional response? Many of you have probably heard the name Chris Evert. She's the world's former number one tennis player. She won 18 Grand Slam titles, still remains one of the greatest tennis players of all time. After her career had come to an end, she began to struggle deeply, personally, in her life. In an interview with Good Housekeeping in 1990, she said this. Listen to her words here. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. Think about those things in your life that are good things that may have graduated to ultimate things. Something in your life that's exceedingly important, exceedingly valuable. 
would you know who you are or what you could be in life if you didn't have that? She continues, I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life was defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Her courage to go public with her struggles serves to help the rest of us. Because we're just like her. We aren't any different. Chris needed the tennis wins to feel special, valuable, distinct. And when the winds dried up, she became depressed. When Jonah lost his source of distinction, he became depressed. If you want to find the idols in your life, track your emotions. They often leave a trail of breadcrumbs all the way down to the idol itself. Third and finally, how is idolatry cured? Now, as a percentage of the book, this exercise with the plant takes up a lot of space. Why? Well, I think God is using this exercise with the plant to try to help Jonah see his idolatrous heart. It's connected to his emotions over God's compassion on the Ninevites. It's not in isolation from each other. They're connected. It's not what Jonah loves that's the problem. It's how much he loves the plant and how little he loves the Ninevites. In other words, his loves are disordered. That's the essence of idolatry. Disordered loves. A good thing becoming an ultimate thing. A good thing becoming an object of love. His loves are disordered because he's looking for distinction in the wrong way in comparison to other people, the people around him. Jonah's specialness is derived from possessing distinction from other people, from being set apart. Jonah's perceived moral superiority over the Ninevites indicates he believes he has contributed to his distinction. So when God gives Nineveh grace, compassion, and love, he undermines Jonah's source of distinction. Jonah's race, religion, moral performance bring nothing to the table. Absolutely nothing. But he is distinct. God's words to Jonah, verses 10 and 11, provide us with enough to conclude Jonah's distinction and the Ninevites' distinction isn't about their race, religion, or their moral performance, but instead, what makes them all distinct is the fact that God created them uniquely in his image and likeness. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people? Jonah, you're so concerned for this plant, even though you didn't create it, I did. I created both the plant and the Ninevites. Should I not be concerned about their well-being? 
this scene gives us such an amazing window into the heart of God and how he views human life. You want a great passage, a fake passage on the sanctity of all human life, this is the one. We know the treacherous history of the Ninevites. They were evil. But God is slow to anger and abounding in love with people because they are his very image and likeness. To be cured from idolatry first begins with understanding my value and worth in one simple truth. I have been made by the king in his image and likeness. That's it. Nicholas Wilterstorff illustrates this well. He, um, he imagines some foreigner knowing nothing about U.S. history becoming perplexed to find out that the Mount Vernon estate in Virginia is preserved as a national monument and treated as an object of such great worth. After all, he might observe that uh, there are quite a number of old Virginia plantation houses of greater architectural merit and beauty than the Mount Vernon estate. Now, we would respond, we would respond by saying that this was the house of George Washington, the founder of our country, and that explains it. The internal merits and the, the quality of the house are irrelevant. Because we treasure the owner, we honor his house. Because it was precious to him, and we revere him, it is precious to us. Wolterstorff concludes, so we must treasure each and every human being as a way of showing due respect for the majesty of their owner and creator. So how is idolatry cured? We get engaged in idolatrous pursuits because of our passion for distinction. One of the ways we're freed from these pursuits is by having a healthy doctrine of the image of God, the imago dei. What I do or accomplish does not make me special. Preach that to yourself. What you do, what you accomplish does not make you special. The Ninevites were special to God, but what had they accomplished? I'm already special. Simply based on who made me and owns me. Now in the New Covenant, this gets ratcheted up. There are a number of places in the New Testament where the New Testament writers look at becoming a Christian, conversion as being created in Christ. Created in Christ. A new creation. So when you get the gospel and when you preach the gospel to yourself daily, this struggle with a passion for distinction will begin to dissipate even more. Here's why. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus is saying to us, you have an inner need to feel valuable, to feel like you're somebody. By dying for you, I am showing you how valuable you are. By dying for you, I am showing you, you are a somebody. Because I don't die for nobodies. 
See, here's the thing. If you're looking to your own performance in life to find distinction, your value will always be determined by your latest accomplishment or failure. Who can live like that? You'll always need another one to keep feeling like you're somebody. Therefore, you will never find rest. But in creation, God says to us, you are distinct, you are valuable because I made you uniquely in my image and likeness. And in the gospel, Jesus permanently changes our status. By going to the cross for us, Jesus says you are definitively valued. You are worth dying for because you are a somebody. Only when we grab hold of these truths, when we preach them to ourselves daily, will we finally find freedom from using our accomplishments to find our distinction. Let's pray. Father, we don't naturally gravitate toward believing we are valuable simply because you made us and own us. We don't naturally gravitate towards believing we are distinct because of the life Jesus lived and the death he died for us. So we need your help to find rest in these truths. Help us to preach these truths to ourselves daily. May your spirit rub them into our hearts so that we can find rest from these relentless pursuits that ultimately come up empty. Remind us in these closing moments of your love, your grace, your compassion for us and nothing more. We ask it to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.